I turned my mic up. There we go. I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Kent, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and we are going to be in Exodus today, Exodus 18. So turn there with me. I'll read. We'll pray. And then we'll see what God has for us today. Exodus 18, starting in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her, or with the two sons with her. Moses went out to meet him, uh, his father-in-law, and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare. And went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that, God had, uh, that the Lord had done to Israel and that, uh, had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the God who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, Moses' father-in-law, before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to, uh, to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide themselves." So it will be easier for you, and they will, bear, they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. Uh, you will be able to endure, and all these people will also go in their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads of the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard cases they brought to Moses, but any smaller matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and they went away to his own country. Let's pray. Father-in-law, father-in-law, 
who I just actually saw this weekend, but I'm not praying to right now. Uh, Father God, how about we go there? Uh, Lord, this is an interesting story that does deal with a father-in-law. And Lord, this is an odd story that in the midst of the Exodus narrative feels weird. But yet, you have, in your spirit, decided to reveal yourself by including this run-in with Moses and his father-in-law. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would open our eyes to what you're doing in this story beyond just leadership tactics or delegation technique, but you would show the bigger point of what's going on in Exodus 18 to our soul, and you might show us how this story and much of what we don't recognize or don't think about when we think of this story is actually a marking of our time, a marking of this place, this cultural moment in history right now, and actually gives us a vision of how we might see your kingdom move in seismic shift ways in this time, in this place, in our city, in our lifetime. Lord, we are a place that is in need of a revival of your kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us people who seek your presence, who follow you to wherever you would go and be people like Moses that have a transformative presence in this place and this time for the sake of seeing your kingdom move, seeing your kingdom flood into this time. I pray that in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I already gave mention to this feels like a really weird story in the middle of Exodus. We've been tracking through the book. We have all the stories that we're very familiar with. And if we think about the book of Exodus, you think about, of course, the plagues. And you think about the crossing of the Red Sea. And you maybe even, if you know the story well enough, know the last couple stories we've been in. These stories of, of Moses and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, going eventually. Next chapter, we'll see them arriving at Mount Sinai to meet with God and to receive the teaching of God in the Torah. But then you get this weird chapter 18 where Moses meets up with his father-in-law in in the desert and they have this meal and then Jethro, his father-in-law, gives out some leadership advice of just like, hey man, you got a delegator, you're just going to really like run dry. And you see pastors, I I listened and I looked at, uh, read a lot of sermons for uh, how other pastors had handled this passage this week. And I remember, I've, I've, historically, I've seen sermons, and most people kind of like take it to this point. I'm like, yes, this is the moment where we're just going to teach about how to like organize your life and organize structures of leadership and things like that, which is very much so helpful and good, but is not ultimately the biggest point that's going on in Exodus 18. You would miss it, probably, in the whole delegation advice. But in the first half of this chapter, Jethro a Midian priest becomes a follower and worshiper of not a generic God who he was a priest of in Midian, but of Yahweh, as he says that the Lord is great and powerful. Now I see he is like no other. And that, of course, we know when we see the Lord in all caps like that in our Bible, it's not just saying the Lord, it's actually replacing the name of Yahweh, the personal name for God. He is in this moment 
becoming one to follow after the God of Moses and Abraham. And you're like, okay, that's awesome. Cool salvation story for Jethro. But this is the beginning seed of a promise that God put into the very beginning of his story that is one of the most consistent narratives throughout the entire story. In Genesis 12, when God comes to Abraham, at that point, Abram, and says to him, hey, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm coming to you, one person, one family, to make one nation, but it's not just about one nation. This is going to be something that tracks throughout all history and eventually spreads and connects all peoples of earth. And it starts through you. But then you go through the book of Genesis, you go through the book of Exodus, and mainly throughout all the Old Testament. And we know the Old Testament, if you are familiar with it, is not really this viral movement going throughout all the nations, but rather following one singular nation. And the other nations, for the most part, wholesalely rejecting Yahweh, rejecting the God of Abraham. But you get these little moments. And this is one of the very first in which a person who is not an Israelite comes to follow Yahweh, the God of the Scriptures. And again, this is big in Exodus because Exodus has already given you two other people groups who have encountered Yahweh, seen him in his power and glory, and decided to reject him. Of course, first you get the Egyptians. I mean, what does God say to Moses in chapter 9? And then Moses then reports to Pharaoh, hey, this is why I've raised you up, so that people would see my power and they would know who I am. And he says all throughout that plague narrative, hey, I am going to show everyone what I'm like through my power moving through the great powerful nation of Egypt and all their gods who I can bring to their knees in a moment. But Egypt doesn't see this and repent. I mean, you get word of some of them in chapter 10 where it says a mixed multitude leaves Egypt with the Israelites, assuming that mixed multitude is most likely made up of Egyptians who, through the plague narrative, come to worship God. But by and large, Egypt rejects Yahweh. They see all these great, powerful plagues, and they still pursue after them and are eventually thrown into the Red Sea, as chapter 15 says. And then after that, in the wilderness narrative, last week we saw the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, again, are another foreign nation. And we know that the bigness of Egypt and the destruction of Egypt is something that spread all throughout the land. And so the Amalekites would have probably very well known who this group was and the stories that have been told about them. But in that moment, they don't humble themselves and repent and say, man, there's something powerful about this God who can trump all the other gods in our system by thwarting them through plagues and can destroy the most mighty nation of our day with just the breath of pushing back water and letting it collapse in. Instead, they say, man, we need to get a leg up on these people and try to ambush and attack them. But then the next story is this one. 
And it's very connected to the Amalekite story, the battle of the Amalekites towards the Israelites. There's a lot of linguistic connection to say these stories are meant to be read together. You're supposed to see one group of people hear of everything that has happened and they reject God. And then this other Midian priest hear of everything that's happened. But his heart is changed to actually worship God. And with something, again, that is a small seed, but will turn into what God has said, blessing all the nations. In fact, we are here because God said, I'm going to bless all the nations through this little tribe in the Middle East. And now we've seen the faith spread across the entire world into our lives and where we sit in Indiana in 2019. But that small seed starts here in this moment. And so I have to ask myself, Why does God choose this moment? What's true about the kind of person Moses is and the kind of moment that he's meeting Jethro that actually, while ten plagues and throwing of Egypt in the Red Sea did not change people's hearts, but there's something in this moment between the meeting of Moses and Jethro that does change someone's heart. And the reason I find that important is because we find ourselves much so in a time like Exodus 18. And I believe that God has revealed himself through Exodus 18 to see if we might see the cultural moment that we are in now, like this moment here in Exodus between Moses and Jethro. And we might become people like Moses in this story that God might actually use us like he did use Moses and shift our culture into actually seeing Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not how they see him now, but as great, as powerful, as the one true God. And we might actually see the kingdom flood into our time and our place. And so that's simply what I want to do for us this morning. I want to just look at this story, and I want to ask, how is Exodus 18 like our moment in time right now? And what is true of Moses that God chose to use him in that moment, and how can that be true of us so God might use us right now in our moment? And so that's our work cut out for us this morning. And with that, let's just look into that first idea. How is Exodus 18 like our uh, moment in culture and time right now? Well, the first thing that we see is... In our cultural moment, and I'll say this, I'm going to borrow a lot from both the pastor and cultural commentator, Mark Sayers. Uh, he's a pastor in uh, Red Church in uh, Melbourne, Australia, and he's written just prolifically on culture and this moment that we find ourselves in right now. And so sitting here and you're a Mark Sayers fan, read his books, heard him, heard him speak, and be like, man, I feel like uh, I've heard this before. You have. I'm just going to repackage it for you because he's done this way better than I can. And he's one that, as he looks at culture right now, he's noticing what probably all of us are noticing, is that we're seeing an increasing post-Christian culture in the West, in Europe, in America. And post-Christian, obviously referring to the fact that Christianity, once being uh, a dominant, thriving force, uh, not only in culture, but also in just the ways that government and systems and structures uh, and the ways that we've organized society was very much so thriving, we now find ourselves in a time where we're increasingly 
moving beyond or, or saying that Christianity was something that we want to put in our path. Again, a lot of you here, particularly if you are someone who calls yourself a Christian, feel that to a certain extent. There is, I remember a story, I was, uh, before I was a pastor, I was involved with the campus ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, and they had in their training material how to share the gospel. And one thing that they did when they were t- like, you know, showing you how to share the gospel uh, through a resource called the Knowing God Personally, uh, Personally Booklet, in which they just walk through the basic steps uh, of you know, God having a wonderful plan for your life, and then you being ravaged by sin, that every part of you is, is broken. There's something in you that's just not the way it should be, but yet uh, you cannot bridge this gap by trying harder. Yet Jesus, through the cross, has bridged this gap on your behalf. He's given you everything you need to be perfect in the eyes of God. Nothing that you've done, but everything that he has done. And so now, if you were to accept this, you can now be in right relationship as a son or a daughter of God. And, and they lay out not only to say that, but then at the end of that, they say, hey, here's the encouragement. And this is um, the founder of Campus Crusade talking about his experience uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s with this resource. He said, if you share this with five people, more than likely four of those people will accept Jesus with you at that moment. And you read that, and you're like, that sounds awesome. Not my experience, though. And it's because he was in a different time and place in our culture. That people generally knew I should probably be better a person than I am and that God, it, they generally believed there was a God and that God, they assumed, was probably angry at them because they weren't measuring up. And so for them to hear a message that God actually is not angry at them but actually extending relationship through not punishing them but by putting their punishment on his son and then giving them full righteousness, not because they're perfect, but because he was perfect on their behalf, that would aliven people's hearts, and they would accept that pretty quickly. It was simply just an idea of getting the message out there. But now we come to a time and place where people hear that and say, okay, cool, but I'm not really that interested. There's a post-Christian element to our society that, A, most of you in this room are probably completely freaked out to have that conversation. Because just even the first beginning of that conversation, hey, let me tell you that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Already you get labeled in some people's minds as like backwards, bigoted, and hateful. And so in this moment of being in a post-Christian society, we see things like the rise of the nuns, which of course is not the rise of back to covenants, but, uh, or, or convents, but is the rise of the people who check none in religious affiliation on a survey. Just say, I don't really associate myself with any faith or any religion whatsoever. Um, of course, you also get this continually, continual rising resistance to Christianity. And I don't want to be overdramatic here because I don't want to play like the, oh, like Christians are a persecuted minority right now. Actually not the case right now in America. Uh, that has been the case in other points in history. It is the case in other countries in this history. Not our point right now, and I think sometimes when we try to beat this war drum of we're a persecuted minority, it, um, it lacks integrity when we're sitting here with nice food, nice clothing, and all these things around us. But there is an increasing tension around the thoughts and the beliefs, or even the idea of exclusivity, which Christianity does purport, that, hey, maybe there's not many ways to achieve communion with God. Maybe there's, yes, many different experiences, many different cultures, but maybe Christianity is something that is not just 
my culture or your culture, but it's something that actually is meant to be a prophetic calling of all cultures back to their father. In different ways, in different ways of experiencing him, yes, there's a great diversity in the church and will be a great diversity if God truly does bless all peoples and bring together what we see in Revelation where all peoples of all tribes are standing around a throne worshiping our God for all of eternity. There will be a beautiful diversity of expression of the body of Jesus. It won't just look like what you grew up with in church if you did. But at the same time, there is an exclusivity if we're saying regardless of culture, regardless of expression, that when Jesus comes and says, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through me. It's a really inconvenient truth to push forward in this time and age. Which again says like, hey, you do you, I do mine. We'll find ourselves up to this mountain, to the divine, the nirvana, the whatever it is up there. We'll just find it in our different ways. But this was a similar time where there's tons of gods. I mean, we talked back in the plague narrative that Egypt worshipped over 2,000 gods, depending on the time of year, the season, what they wanted. And there was all this sense of sacrifice and worship and trying to find their way into the divine. And Yahweh shows up in this moment and says, hey, I'm going to lead a people to show all these gods are bankrupt. There's no way to get to God. Because ultimately, I'm not one who's angry, who needs to be appeased by sacrifices. I mean, ultimately, God has wrath, and it is appeased by a sacrifice in Jesus. But there's no amount of you trying to garner favor with me by you kill enough bulls, and okay, fine, I'll bless your crops. Rather, no, I'm coming into the reality of this world to bring my presence and bring my kingdom in through my Son and those who would seek me and seek to rule as kings and queens in this kingdom that loves others, that lays life down for others, that seeks peace, not by appeasing gods, but by coming into a fullness of what it is to be human by aligning ourselves to how he's laid out humanity to be, first by abiding in his presence. But as... Our society has become post-Christian. Similar to this one, although it was pre-Christian, there's a big difference. It's not just pre and post, or like, oh, post is just getting back to pre-Christianity. No, there's a big difference between those two cultures, but there is some similarities. And where there is this hostility uh, towards these ideas, there is a, a uncomfortable, inconvenient nature about being the one who follows Jesus in this time and this place. But we also look around in our culture and again, I'm really indebted to Sayers for this point. And we see that just like in Exodus, there's all these cracks in the system that say, maybe this post-Christian secularism that we see in this time and this place, though we see it as this big, bad post-Christianity that's just going to continue to rise, continue to swarm, continue to eradicate the church in our day, Maybe it's not very strong at all. Maybe it's extremely weak. And Sayers gets at this point. He says there's something about now, as he looks around as one who's just a good observant of culture, 
and says there's, there's something that kind of feels like the tide is about ready to come back in. He uses an illustration. I think it's a good one. He talks about how often you see a revival of the kingdom come in and out of different cultures like a tide. And he said there was a time in which the tides were high in the Western world, where Christianity and faith were, and the kingdom were, were exploding in different ways. People were being changed. Lives were, were encountering Jesus, and it was just like, hey, share it with five people. Four of them are just going to fall to their knees and worship. But now we see a time where the tide has been moving out. And it's in this moment, people say Christianity is dying, the church is closing, it's going away, eventually it'll be eradicated. And okay, maybe that's true. But what if instead of that image, it is the idea of the tide removing itself, pulling back? But if you know anything about oceans, and because we're in Indiana, I don't expect any of us to know anything about oceans. Tides, when they come out, the longer they stay out, it's not that the water is dying or going away, but rather the longer it stays out, the more pressure it builds. The longer it's out, the more it floods back in with more strength and covers more ground. And Sarah says, what if the cultural moment that we're experiencing right now is not the death of the church, but rather the tide has been out for so long that while he believes it might be in his lifetime, but even if not, in the very soon time, we actually might see the Western church begin to rush in with a new work of the Spirit. And he points to a couple reasons of why he says that is. First of all, he says, you look around at culture right now, and culture is very much so in the wilderness. We talked about the wilderness last week, that several times throughout your life and mine, and a lot of you right now are in a place of wilderness, and, and God leads Moses and the Israelites to the wilderness. Like right after the Red Sea moment, he takes them out of slavery, and then he puts them in the wilderness. Why? Because the wilderness is where God takes us because some things need to die. There's some things we're having our faith into, or holding on to and putting our faith in, that will not support the weight of our souls, and he needs to remove our grip from those things. And so he'll take the Israelites out, and they're going to complain about where's the food, where's the water, where's the safety. Now we're all freaking out because we, maybe, like we were slaves in Egypt, but at least they kept us safe, at least they kept us well fed. And God's saying, yeah, I need to break the slavery mentality out of you. I need to break this sense of that you need your slavery in order to be safe, because even when you're in the wilderness, in the desert, someplace that says screams of danger and chaos in your culture, I can provide and protect for you, because it's not Egypt who provides for you, it's not your food or all your situations or anything that you find yourself in, it's me and me alone, and God is going to take several moments in your life and mine, and he is, and man, after last week, it's really interesting how many of you came up and said, that really reflects where I'm at right now. Like I'm in a place of in-between jobs and I don't know what's going on right now. Or I'm in a place with a new marriage and it's not exactly working out like I thought it would right now. Or I'm in a place of my singleness and I, I didn't think I'd still be here into my 30s right now. Or I'm in a place of all just name, fill in the blank. And people, a lot of us are just in a place where we're experiencing where God is taking something that might be a good thing. 
but he's breaking our faith in it because it cannot support the weight of our soul, even if we get it. And he's putting our faith fully on him. And people always hear about the wilderness of Christianity. They always are like, man, that's like the least effective marketing tool that you've ever come up with there. Like, uh, Like, why doesn't God, like, I mean, culture doesn't seem to go through the wilderness, but Christianity does. But at the same time, if you look at our moment right now, culture is very much so in the wilderness. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or not right now. Mental health is at record lows. Happiness that's been tracked since the 1960s has increasingly decreased since they began tracking it. Anxiety and depression are just commonplace. If I just, we were just pull the room right now, how many people feel like either now or in the recent past have experienced anxiety and depression? It would be pretty much across the board. Anxiety, mental health experts would say, is like the canary in the coal mine. I mean, coal, mine coal miners, there was toxic gases that would be in coal mines, and so they didn't have all these in, sophisticated ways of tracking if that gas was coming up. So what would they do? They'd bring a canary down there with them. And once the canary dies, because they're more sensitive to these gases, they knew, get out now, because though we can't sense it, this place is toxic. And mental health experts say, hey, anxiety is like the canary starting to die. It means that there's an amazing amount of stress going over a culture when anxiety starts being experienced in that. We live in a time where that canary is dying. And it's because there is a way in which our culture views the world. This progressive reality, and I'm not trying to like be just exclusively like politically progressive, I'm saying like more of the general broad term of just a progressive idea of that we as a culture will progressively get better technology, better systems, better governments. We will have have an increasing amount of life and vitality, and we will eventually evolve into a utopian society. That idea is, it's interesting because it's uniquely Judeo-Christian. All throughout time and history, no other faith tradition or way of viewing the world saw progression as a natural course that had to take place. Rather, they saw secular cycle type uh, behavior of the world, that things would come and they would go. You'd be on the top and you'd be at the bottom. I mean, the East, Eastern religions, all, even Western religions, all pagan religions, all see the secular nature. Judaism, there's a book, I believe, called The Gift of Judaism, which talks about the idea of the very first time people saw, hey, maybe there's something that history is progressing to. And yes, there's these cycles, there's these ebbs and these flows, but there is this something, this kingdom that God is bringing in and increasingly moving us towards. And that is only true of Judaism and Christianity. The book purports, and if you look across time and history, it's actually true. Except until now, in a post-Christian society, you have a sense of wanting the kingdom, a progressive thing that moves towards a a kingdom-like reality. I just don't want the king. But here's the lesson we learn from the Tower of Babel and all throughout the scripture. Whenever society desires to have the kingdom without the king, God comes in and intentionally lets his presence flee from it and let it starve and die. 
And so in this moment, again, we find ourselves looking around at society, seeing all this anxiety, this depression, this lack of satisfaction, this lack of connection, this increase of loner culture, this increase of all things starting to break down. And why is that possibly? It's because this progressive reality that all things are going to get better and better and better is actually not true without the king. And so we see it on a macro level. This idea of eventually we will all just become you know, good progressive thinkers and, and love and live in harmony is seeing a huge reaction as nationalistic behaviors and, and identities have risen up stronger now than possibly ever. The idea that we're progressing to a place where race is all of a sudden, we're post-racial, that's no longer a problem. We're post-class, that's no longer a problem. The last couple years have said maybe that is still a really big problem. This idea that we're becoming just, you know, even more sexually liberated, and that sexual liberation, it's just going to bring, like, freedom and joy and harmony, and we can break from this tradition of the past that there just needs to be monogamy and marriage, and we can just completely free ourselves to just seek the orgasm at whatever cost. And that's going to be the freedom and the enlightenment of all people. Things like Me Too and other things have shown that maybe that actually has come at bigger cost than we thought. And there's all these continual cracks in the system. That's at the macro level. Let's talk about the micro level. You are unhappy. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, I know your life. I just know as in the large, by and large, as we've already said, people are struggling with anxiety, depression. People are struggling with lack of satisfaction. And part of it is because we live in a society driven on consumerism that just continues to drive further and further forward of you need more and more and more, and yet all we know about actual happiness, it doesn't come from pleasure and consuming, that is nice, but actual happiness comes from contentment, the ability to not have to consume anything and be okay. But who can do that? Who can stop consuming, stop droning out, and actually just sit in, in silence and solitude be okay. We run from that moment with everything in us. And it's because there's this sense of, hey, eventually you'll just have enough choices in consumerism. You'll be able to just purchase enough or get this and design your life all that you want. But the paradox of choice is said, we have more choices that we've ever wanted or ever thought possible in the past. But yet every, even though we get the more perfect cup of coffee that we could ever have desired for our personal taste buds, we're left unsatisfied about what about all the other cups of coffee that we turned down? What about all the other opportunities that we're missing out on? What about the potential of better options? Do I know this is the perfect cup of coffee for me? And so a dissatisfaction continues to grow because that's the only way a consumeristic system can work is you have to be continually dissatisfied and seeking more. And so we're discipled in that. And then social media comes along. And here's what it tells you. You are uniquely failing. Everybody else on your feed is figuring out how to be a mom that's homeschooling their kids, working out six and a half days a week, studying Nietzsche as they do it, and just all together having perfect whole 30 meals on the table every single night, 
and sitting around and leading Bible studies, or if that's not your thing, I don't know, maybe they're leading a Nietzsche. I mean, whatever it is, you're just having the sense where everybody else has figured it out, but that's not true of your life. That's not true of who you are. And so it's this system that says you're failing. You need to do more. You need to have your house better put together. You need to have your life and your relationships better put together. But you are continually failing. And all of a sudden, we're just seeing this continual sense of everyone feels like a failure, but no one is presenting that on social media. And so behind the lie that even though we know is true, that's probably not perfect in their life. There's something in our hearts that suspect, yeah, but I'm uniquely broken. And the last piece to it I think that we see is failing is we're starting to unearth that lie. Not only a lie of consumerism that like, hey, maybe consumption isn't going to lead to happiness, but maybe uh, contentment and satisfaction. We're starting to sense that out. But we're also seeing there's a lie in the way that the world operates around us and speaks to us. It says to us things like, hey, all people are unique individuals and need to be treated as such. But like, it's operating on a sense that like, we are herd beings that are able to be manipulated by our desires and by external stimuli. And the thing is that whenever there's a gap between what is told to us is true and what tech companies and marketing companies are actually functioning as true, we start to realize, hey, this system is actually broken. There's cracks, and this, this needs to die. And again, Sayers points out, Maybe there's something unique to this moment of our culture being in this place of outrage culture. Everyone's angry. Depression culture. Everyone is depressed. Anxious culture. Everyone feels like they're failing all the time. That it's the tide being out and out and out. In one of these moments, God is going to release the tide back in. And what flows in is a new and fresh and more powerful expression of the Spirit than we have yet to see. It already happened in the 18th century with the Great Awakening in America. That was another time, by the way, when the church thought they were going to close their doors. And it, like, we think, like, oh, how bad was it? Charles Simeon had trouble producing sermons. He's like one of these great like, preachers of all time. His biggest problem for producing sermons was the noise of people having sex outside his door. It was a time where people would just raid your room publicly. War was all over. Revolutions were happening all over. There was a sense of political unrest all over. And in that moment, God decides to spark the great revival across Europe, across Australia, New Zealand, and America. And we see the church come back in a huge rush of a tide coming back in. And people say, man, it's all going away. It's all going away. It's like, well, maybe it's the tide going back out again, and maybe it's about ready to unleash once again. So what's all this have to do with Exodus 18? Well, again, it's a very similar moment in which they're rushing after many gods, but God comes in and starts to put cracks in the system. Hey, ten plagues. I can actually be more powerful than all your gods. I can start to show you that what you're putting your faith in doesn't work. And again, our culture, the idol of pleasure the idol of sexual expression, the idol of all these things, maybe are actually starting to show themselves as not being what is going to save them. I mean, come on, we're in the church and we feel that. And so, in this moment, 
you get a Midian priest that shows up and actually, again, it seems like such a small moment, but where Egypt saw the plagues in the Red Sea and didn't believe, where the Amalekites saw the plagues in the Red Sea and didn't believe. He hears of it from Moses' lips, and he believes. Why did God include this moment? Why is all of a sudden Jethro, this Midian priest, the one who actually believes and everybody else had more reason to do so? And I believe it's actually because of where Moses is at. Think about Moses' story up to this point. And again, this is going to be important because I think God's actually calling us to arrive here and actually use us like he did Moses. But again, think of where Moses has been at this point. The beginning chapters, God calls Moses and he says, like, he doesn't say this uh, this to him uh, in his early points, but he basically says he's setting aside this boy who's going to grow up and he's going to be the one who liberates his people from slavery. And Moses must get like a sense of that early on because he even tries to liberate the people from slavery of his own might. He tries to murder an Egyptian, but he gets rejected. It's of his own strength. It doesn't work. And so uh, he all of a sudden realizes that he's going to get murdered for murdering an Egyptian if he sticks around. So he flees out to the wilderness to watch sheep for 40 years. It's interesting. We're back in the wilderness with the Israelites for the first time, not Moses' first trip to the wilderness. 40 years, God breaks Moses of his own self-sufficiency, of him doing things of his own time, of his own accord, and makes him someone who is now ready to be instructed by God in the burning bush. And you get the burning bush narrative. Interestingly enough, though, 40 years didn't work everything out for Moses. He's still, like, asking all these questions. Who are you? Who am I? Who's that? Is this actually going to be able to happen? And so Moses, even though he's now more prepared to listen to God, he's still in process. But God sends him to Egypt through another wilderness period, actually, where you see God actually have this point where he's like wrestling with Moses and tries to kill, well not wrestling, but we don't know exactly either. He tries to kill Moses until Moses' wife takes foreskin and puts it on his feet. You remember that whole scene, really weird and everything? Don't have time to go into that. Go check the podcast on what all's going on there. But still, it's another picture of another wilderness moment where God is continuing to bring Moses' heart fully of other things he trusts and fully place it on him. Somebody who fully seeks the presence of God. And then you see Throughout the plagues, Moses is following God, but he still is struggling in some level of doubt. How is this really going to work? How is he going to fully follow God, but yet he still continues to move forward? And he sees God be faithful in the plagues. He sees God be faithful at the Red Sea. And then when they go back to the wilderness with the Israelites, this time the Israelites are freaking out. Where's all the water? Where's the food? But Moses continually comes and seeks the presence of God, is obedient to follow him in whatever he says, and he is a transformed presence in the wilderness. I mean, no longer is he just like trying to do things of his own accord. I mean, when they go fight the Amalekites in the last chapter, he says, hey, you go fight the Amalekites, but Moses doesn't go out with him. He goes up on a, mount, uh, on a hill to seek the presence of God. You see throughout the course of Moses' life all these wildernesses, all this point where God's pushing on him and taking and breaking some idols, and yes, it was painful, but yet we've arrived at this point where he is now a transformed presence. I mean, you see that in the narrative when Moses is talking about, it just talks about his kids. 
And do you remember that in verses 2 through 4? Verses 2, Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after him, and sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. We already met Gershom, we already know. Like, yeah, he's, like, Moses at one point was just, like, naming him because he's like, I have had to go out into the wilderness and be somebody who is just wandering in a foreign place. And the name of the other, though, and this is where it's big, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of the Pharaoh. All of a sudden you get in just the mentioning of how Moses and his wife picked baby names as an expression of God's, or of, of Moses' now seeking God's presence at all costs and following wherever he goes. You see it in the wilderness narrative. He's willing to be on board in all time, at all times. And you see in Moses someone who has been transformed by sitting in God's transforming presence. And now you see Jethro come, and he doesn't see the ten plagues. He doesn't see the Red Sea. But what he does see is somebody who's in the wilderness, but yet is like a tree planted by flowing waters that even in the dry and weary land, it produces abundant fruit. All of us want that to be the evangelism plan of God. God, why don't you show up and do something really like just freaking crazy and right up in the sky with clouds this is God, and then we don't have to do this whole like, hey, do you believe in Jesus? No, you think I'm weird? Okay. And go on to the next person, and that would just be a lot more like effective. The funny thing is, is if you read the Bible, God shows up all the time and does crazy stuff. I mean, he shows up ten times and blackens out skies, brings boils and frogs and gnats and all different sorts of stuff going on. He brings a death angel and kills all the firstborn. He splits a sea and lets one people pass through and crushes the other, and people don't believe. But Jethro does because he sees someone in the image of God who has been transformed by God's presence. This whole idea of, like, God, why, like, why do you send me Versus doing some great miraculous act. Biblically speaking, miraculous acts have a very limited effectiveness. Somebody seeing Jesus, you being someone who's earnestly sought the presence of Jesus and been transformed by his transforming presence, highly effective. And so, back to this cultural moment. We find ourselves in, and yeah, maybe the church is, is dying in a, in a post-Christian, it's all going to go away and burn. Or maybe the tide is out. And maybe God is waiting and building strength in the tide for it to rush back in. How did it rush back in in Exodus 18? By somebody who had been transformed by the wilderness, who had let go of everything else that they were holding on to, radically seeks to follow God wherever he would go. What if that was true of us in this time, in this place? That these wilderness moments that all of you are experiencing, that I'm talking to you about, and that I'm experiencing and I'm talking about, and that we're all here in this point, we're like, man, I really feel like I just don't know what God is doing. I'm struggling with doubt. I'm struggling with like, 
a sense of, of this like feeling like I can understand which way is up as I'm like walking through life right now because he's challenging everything I thought I had to have and he's breaking my grip and everything I th- thought that I was actually going to find life in but are not bringing life at all or maybe they're just not giving him to me and so I'm realizing I can't trust in that. I have to trust in actually him. Maybe he's forming us into a people that would seek his presence and seek to follow him no matter where he went. And we would become people like Moses that are trees planted by streams of living water. That even in a time where it was really dry and weary out in the world, they would see us and there'd be something amazingly attractive about us. There'd be something transformative about a presence of a people who have been in the presence of a transformative God. That is entirely what this practicing the way of Jesus' spiritual formation push of ours is all about. Of Yeah, we want to be a missional church. We want to see people come. But And I don't want to like critique, like there's really amazing forms of God moving forward in all different forms of church. But maybe the let's get bigger and bigger and bigger and 90% of the people who were here last year are no longer here this year because there's this hunger to experience God, but yet there's no sense of actually experiencing his presence and following him with everything that you have. Maybe that's not attracting a culture that is dry and weary because that looks really dry and weary. Maybe this new form of prosperity gospel that's really popular in, this, in a younger generation of like, yes, I want the things of God, but I also kind of want to pick and choose so I can have all the pleasures and joys of the world too. Maybe that has no power in your life or the people around you, and that's not transforming people around you, because what's really powerful is just fully submitting to the presence of God and following him wherever he would go. I don't pick and choose what I follow. I just, I just learn to continually follow. What if all these things we're putting forward in the spiritual formations paradigm is practicing the way of Jesus? Again, starts with presence. Abide in me and you will produce much fruit. Or Acts 4 where these, I believe, Roman officials like take the disciples and they're like, they, were really, they saw that they were uneducated men, but yet they were powerful because they had been with Jesus. A group of people that experienced the presence of God and therefore have been transformed and are able to transform. That's what God has used in every revival. Typically uneducated, unimpressive people that have just personally desired and yearned with everything in them to sit in the presence of their God and be transformed by him. What if this new year, and I don't care about January 1st, this is new year. Uh, What if like this new year that you're forming your life around right now, you took something from the spiritual formation mini-series that we've already done, and you sought to, with vigor, Seek to be in God's presence through that formative practice. It's not about just developing practices. 
But we do know that habits do start to shift our emotions and our behaviors and our hearts. So what if you took Sabbath and you really worked at like killing your workaholism, killing your sense that what you trust in most is your ability to answer more emails or keep things all held together and you for one day shut off, shut down, and let God hold your life together. Probably will feel like having your fingernails ripped out at first. But eventually, over time, after continually seeing God provide and continually seeking his presence at all times, but concentratedly so for a day each week. And again, we went over Sabbath. I mean, go back to the sermon series. There's times of celebration. There's good food. There's good times and relationships. All those things are a part of Sabbath historically. All with this banner of how do I seek God's presence in this way? How do I seek him in this good food? How do I seek him in this relationship? How do I seek him by turning off? Or you press into prayer, and I don't just mean like spoken prayer. In that series, we talk about spoken prayer and interceding and asking for God to come, and absolutely. You just have a place where like every day, consistently, you get up at 5.45 so you can make the coffee, so you can be fully awake at 6, so that you can do every single day seeking God in prayer. But not just, again, in intercession, but also in silence and solitude of learning not to just continue out and consume more and seek more pleasure, but you do the soul excruciating but powerful work of just sitting in his presence, of just trying to recognize the fact that the spirit of God lives inside of you and maybe what you need to do is quiet all of the chaotic winds in your mind and in your life and that still small voice is there. Thousands upon thousands of brothers and sisters have found that to be true. So maybe you're the one person that's uniquely broken. Or maybe we're just so distracted that we can't hear. Or you take scripture, and like we were in June, not just trying to read and check it off, but are trying to seek who he is, seek how he's designed the world, wrestle through the tough passages, Get resources to help you figure out what is this genealogy saying? My wife and I last night, we just, uh, we just this past week hit our 10th year anniversary. We've been married for 10 years, which is crazy to me. And we decided to celebrate just this week by going overnight to Chicago. She got tickets to Hamilton. It was wonderful. All things were good. And yesterday we went to Wildberry uh, right there by Millennium Park in Chicago. Waited an hour and a half to get there, uh, get in. But either way, uh, regardless, it's great. They, they sent us a text. We were over Millennium Park walking around. It was great. We go and we sit at Wildberry, and she sits there and tells me about, in the Genesis study that she and a number of women from our congregation had just completed, all that she was learning from the genealogy of Noah after the flood. And we're just like talking. We're just like, holy cow, all of this is true and just showing all these things going on in our life and now from this genealogy because she was tearing into it and then she was discussing with me and I was like, oh man, that reminds me of this point in scripture and we were just talking about all these different things and we were together but we were also being floored by the presence of our God together. What if you started a rhythm this year again that was like taking scripture, taking prayer, taking Sabbath, taking solitude and don't do them all, pick one. Maybe you're a person who wants to rotate for sake of variety. Great, get a, get a rhythm. But whatever you do, don't do everything and therefore do nothing. Just do something. And at the end of this year, you are not going to be Jesus or Mother Teresa. 
but you will be a little bit more sensitive to the presence of God. You will be ever much so formed into his image. You probably will have started to develop a habit that actually has something that where all these things didn't really seem appealing to you. Maybe they seem appealing and everything of the rest of the world that you just couldn't break your crap over or your, your grip over Netflix or, or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. It's just like a little bit like less having a death grip on your soul. And over this year and next year, and whether you're here or another community or whether God gives us 40 years together or 50 or more, we're people that are seeking the presence of our God, being transformed by his transforming presence, and therefore becoming a transforming presence. Let's do that right now by all being in the transforming presence of our God through the act of communion. Communion is a regular time of abiding with Jesus. As we abide in the moment that he changes all of human history, when his body is broken, his blood is spilled, for a sacrifice that truly does appease the wrath of God for all who would be marked by it. That now no longer makes us enemies of God who are outside of his presence, but makes us sons and daughters that are welcomed into his presence. And so the whole present idea, the whole idea of presence is not only made possible by the act that is behind communion, it is also a weekly ability to just sit in his presence to realize, yeah, this is bread and this is juice. But through the power of the Holy Spirit and through my faith, God is actually connecting me to his transformative moment on the cross in a way that, as some people have said, there is no more intimate time to be in the presence of God for the believer than the communion moment each week. Maybe baptism, but that just doesn't happen every week. Shouldn't anyway. Um, I mean, maybe different people, not you. You get what I mean. Transition back. So when you're ready, come forward. Take the bread and the cup. The way we do it here is there's stations in a room. Around the room, you take the bread, you tear it, you dip it in the cup. There's a gluten-free station up here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, don't feel the need to just step up here and, and be a part of this. It totally is not weird or uncomfortable for you just to sit and stand and wrestle with these things. We're glad that you're here. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would give us in this moment, again, a transformed it's just a small moment of transformation. Lord, let us not be in the pr- point of the pressure that we do have to be Mother Teresa or we have to have some heartwarming that happens right now as we head into communion. Maybe it's nothing that we feel overt. Maybe it's much more subtle than that. But yet it's this regular soul-shaping rhythm of coming before you, taking of the bread, which you said, this is my body, taking of the cup, which you said, this is my blood, remembering that moment and then also continuing to form our lives around that reality that we have been purchased out of sin and freed from it. We're just like the Israelites. We're not under a slave master anymore. We're under a servitude to you, which instead of breaking down and making us less human, actually gives us life and makes us more. So let us remember that moment. Let us rehearse that moment of growing into a connection and abiding, a a sitting in your presence that might make us a transformative presence in this world today. I pray that in your your son Jesus' name. Amen.